Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. The next four ASP Stories episodes will be with Sam Manicom. Sam has spent many years traveling around the world on his motorcycle, and he's written a few books to tell all about it. In these next four episodes, he'll be reading from his books Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns, and Tortillas to Totems. If you'd like to find out more about Sam and get his books, you can visit him at sam-manicom.com. You can also hear his interview on the Adventure Sports Podcast on episode 149. And now, here's Sam Manicom. Chapter 12. A Living Epic Grace Lichtenstein said, Adventure can be an end in itself. Self-discovery is the secret ingredient. Peru. The very name conjured up images of Incas, the Andes and beautiful roads, of squat, flamboyantly dressed indigenous Indians, of Spanish conquistadors and their hunt for gold, of Cusco, the Shining Path bandits and desert mummies. Fine. If Bolivia wasn't for us this time, then Peru sounded like a prize alternative. In fact, with its amazingly diverse landscape and well-documented historical past, it didn't feel like second choice at all. Peru is a pearl among the jewels in the South American crown, and if we were being guided this way, then so be it. We hit the road as soon as we could the only delay being a wait until 9am for the man with the key to the garage. The bikes were fit, we had food supplies on board for a couple of days, just in case, and the tanks were full. We'd not managed to change any dollars into the Peruvian currency, but we had managed to get a Relaciones de Pasajeros. We'd been told that this was a vital piece of paperwork and without it we'd not get across the border. We wanted everything to be right because, for the first time outside of Europe, we were going to try and cross a border without using our carnets for the bikes. We could have been travelling all the time in South America without them, but as we still had time left on them, we'd been using them. From what we'd heard, they made border crossing simpler, but weren't a requirement. Our carnets were due to run out in about three weeks, and we planned to be in Peru for a lot longer than that. So, with the aim of not complicating things, we decided to bite the bullet and try the crossing without. It felt quite strange to be suddenly cutting out a very familiar part of a border crossing. Just outside Arica, a long line of trucks spread like a sleeping snake up the road towards Bolivia. It didn't look as if anyone was going anywhere quickly. Engines were off, and the drivers were milling about in the pale morning sun, sending wisps of cigarette smoke to join the cool mist that gently floated over the foothills. It was a Sunday, and that meant the border crossing was quite quiet. While I stayed with the bikes and our gear, Birgit set off to work her way from one building and one counter to the next. From the way the officials reacted to a petite lass dressed in leather, 
it made a lot of sense for her to deal with them and the paperwork. They'd all try to politely chat her up. The expressions and body language were all flirtatious and fun. Some of the blokes were quite funny as they postured and posed in front of her. Images of bantam cockerels came to mind. Some of them were good-looking, but they all seemed to share an unshakable belief that they were God's gift to women. By this time, I'd learned enough to hold basic conversations and to understand the jokes that were being made about my surname. Said in bad Spanish, Manicum sounds very much like maricon, which means homosexual. In a culture that's as macho as South America's, that always caused great hilarity amongst the Pratt, and resulted in embarrassed, I-don't-know-where-to-look expressions from those with manners. Either way, I itched to find enough Spanish to bounce back at the joke-makers with a suitable retort. My Spanish, however, was producing some laughs as well. The previous day, I'd yelled Bosta at the market trader when he'd been just far too much hassle. He'd stopped abruptly and mid-rapid-fire sentence, so it had worked. It was only later that I'd realised I'd meant to say basta, which means enough. What I'd actually yelled at the guy was, Horseshit! No wonder he'd looked so startled, but it had worked. Birgit returned surprisingly quickly. She was waving a fistful of papers at me and had an expression of triumph on her face. Done it, let's go, she said. We were about to ride from the second world countries of Argentina and Chile into a third world country. Peru was very poor and very unstable in comparison. As always, riding across no man's land gave a moment for reflection. Chile had literally put our backs against the wall, but in the main, it had been a kind country with generous, open-hearted people, systems that had mostly worked well, and scenery that was both unique and stunning. We'd mostly had the feeling that we'd been safe too. The fact that corruption was such a small issue in Chile had helped us to have this feeling. All in all, our months in Chile had been good to us, and the quality of roads running north from Puerto Varas had been good enough to allow my bones to settle and for me to rebuild my biking muscle tone. Life was good. What did it have in store for us next? Reams more paperwork and endless rubber stamps on the paperwork, all of which was beginning to wear Birgit down a bit, but eventually she was back from the Peruvian customs. Okay, she said tiredly, I think it's all done. Let's ease on out of here. It wasn't to be. At the last checkpoint, the border control guard checked the collection of papers and, clicking his tongue, said that we didn't have the papers we should have. We needed a Relaciones de Pasajeros for each bike. We suspected that Birgit had got as far as she had because the officials had thought that we were two up on one bike. Birgit's face dropped. We'd have to go back to Chile and start all over again. But no, I was to stay where I was, the guard told Birgit. He would come back with her to help her speed through the process. I could see him puffing himself up with macho pride. He was going to be the one who would help this damsel in distress get through. Fantastic as far as I was concerned but I hope for Birgit's sake that it wouldn't get to the bum-pinching stage or something equally over the top. The two of them set off on foot, Birgit's leathers squeaking as she walked. She told me later that he'd been very helpful, but his flirting became quite annoying and ultimately rather insulting. 
He'd alternated between trying to chat her up and watching the football that was showing on screens throughout the offices. I told her that he'd actually honoured her. Wasn't football more important than anything else in Latin America? In spite of the time taken to cross the border, there was still a good chunk of the day left. We decided to ride on. We'd skirt the city of Tacna and head for Moquegua. It was only a couple of hundred kilometres, and since it was a Sunday, there was hardly any traffic on the road. We sat back on the bikes and cruised along gently, remaining comfortably within the speed limit. A customs checkpoint roughly halfway to Tacna let us on through without any real hassle. This was promising, and gave a good feeling to the country, and a relief. We'd been hearing some very dodgy stories about the shenanigans the Peruvian police and officials got up to. One person we'd met coming out of the country had warned, look out for the police, they have guns and aren't afraid to use them. Other travellers told us tales of bikers who'd been involved in accidents and had their bikes confiscated. But the feeling that life was good got even better as we neared Moquegua. The landscape changed quickly from arid, beige and unkempt desert to lush, green and cultivated valleys. The tarmac was in good condition and everything felt well with the world. Hayricks and wooden huts dotted the fields, none of which seemed to have much in the way of fencing. The soil was a dark, rich colour, and the grass, where the land had been given over to meadow, was green and moist. Cows had been tethered to graze, and without fences, they were kept in place by stakes and ropes, so they could graze their own crop circles. The Mokokwa River rushed along beside the fields, and we could see maize and long runs of grapes. I was surprised at how warm the air was now. The town itself was a mix of cobblestone streets and alleyways. Many of the buildings looked quite rough and ready, but some of them were grand in comparison and had imposing wooden doors with metal studs and spikes pounded into them. We bumped on the cobbles past the market area, which was packed with people who were much shorter than most Chileans we'd seen and dressed in simple clothing. Another big difference was that they were far more curious about us than most Chileans had been. We managed to stop quite a few conversations as we rode past looking for signs of a hotel, hostel or campsite. Up in the steep and narrow back streets we found the Hotel Limones. It looked a little grand for our usual budget, but there was nowhere cheaper and when we peeked through the gates we knew it was the place for us. So what if it was a little on the expensive side? Entering a new country deserved a splurge. Beyond the wrought iron and chunky wooden gates was a garden filled with citrus trees, hence the name of the hotel. The branches were laden with large, bright yellow and very knobbly lemons. Around the garden was a raised stone walkway, bordered with a low stone wall, upon which stood columns that supported a tile roof. Dotted in between were white urns planted with flowers. Along the walls of the walkway were solid-looking wooden doors and windows with ornate wrought-iron bars. Yes, we could bring the bikes in, and yes, they had room for us. The room was quite large, with whitewashed, rough-rendered walls and almost a Spartan feeling to it. It made us think that perhaps the building had once been some sort of monastery. However, the room was clean and the sheets on the large wooden bed were sparkling white. 
We didn't normally stay in places that ran to sheets, let alone clean white ones, so this was a real novelty. The walkway in front of the rooms was wide enough to park the bikes on the worn, uneven stone without getting in anyone's way. But they did look road-worn and rather dusty. The surroundings emphasised that the bikes had done some rugged kilometres. I just hoped that neither of them would leak any oil. A visit to the market was a must. A food shopping expedition also gave our daily six-kilometre exploration exercise an objective. We arrived back at the room armed with rosca, a very sweet, very dry bread that's almost powdery in texture. Dunked in coffee or tea, it tasted good, but on its own it seemed to explode as soon as it was bitten into, and then would soak up all the moisture in your mouth. It made you sound like the village idiot when you tried to say anything. We also came back with some great little avocados. These had cost buttons, and we'd found a round slab of superb but rather pungent goat's cheese. We settled down on the walkway to eat. It looked as if we were the only guests, so we sat back enjoying the wafted scents of the lemons and feeling the gentle warm breeze as it floated through the gardens. Welcome to Peru. Peru is the third largest country in South America, and it's divided roughly into three regions that run more or less north to south. Along the coast are dry and frequently barren lands that are bordered by the cold waters of the Pacific. The majority of the moisture that these lands get comes not from rain but from dense, chilly fogs which roll in off the sea from May to November. The coast is the most highly developed and this is where what industry there is tends to be based. Fishing is one of the main industries as the chilly Humboldt current literally teems with fish. So much so that it's rather like a fish motorway running from north to south. There is quite a bit of farming going on in this section, but only where it's possible to irrigate. The soils are actually quite fertile, but sufficient water is a major problem, and the reason for the barren nature of the area. The middle region is the High Sierra. This is stacked with dramatic mountains and split by gorges, but its gentler slopes and valleys are suitable for cultivation. Most of the inhabitants here are indigenous Indians, and the area is far less affluent than the coast. In part, this is due to custom and education, but it's also due to much of the population surviving on too small an area of cultivable land. Potatoes and cereal tend to be the main crops, and some cattle are farmed, but in the main the land is too poor to support much cultivation. There are vast sections where cattle can't survive, but the more hardy llamas can. So, farmers eke out a living breeding them for meat, milk and wool. It must be a harsh and vulnerable life. As soon as you are over the mountains, the slopes fall away to become heavily forested and eventually drop down into the Amazon basin. Though this region is the largest, it's the least populated. The terrain and climate don't encourage many to try to live here. The main form of transport is by boat down the rivers. Roads are few and dangerous, mostly because they are dirt roads and subject to constant landslides. Most of the people live right on the riverside, but these difficulties make for a completely different, rather cut-off way of living. For me, it wasn't just the extreme diversity of the land that fascinated. It was the history. 
This land had had civilized nations living in it for 4,000 years. Some human remains have even been carbon dated back to 7,500 BC. I'd read that, in spite of the conquistadors' eager search for gold, and in spite of the modern rape of historical sites for artefacts, we were in for a treat. There were more than enough buildings and artefacts left to enthrall us. I was particularly keen to find out more about the Incas. These people had controlled the largest empire that South America had ever known. Inca lands included Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador and much of Argentina and Chile. The empire began in roughly 1197. Keen to get exploring, Birgit and I left the Hotel Limones in good time. We didn't want to leave too early though because the dawn was decidedly chilly. The sun needed to be well and truly up before we ventured out onto the roads. We were heading for the city of Arequipa. We'd read that Arequipa not only had some magnificent Spanish architecture, but stood in the valley below the El Misti volcano. It was also a major station on the railway that ran from the coast up into the mountains. I'd read that this train journey was an erratically run epic, so we were keen to find out more about it. We were back on the main road and heading north by ten o'clock. The road was good and the bikes were running smoothly. It was a fine sunny day and we were full of anticipation. Suddenly we were confronted by a police car and two policemen who were making perfectly clear that we had to pull over. Uh Uh-oh, their body language did not look good. My instant reaction was to check our speed. Nope, not a problem, we were well within the limit. Perhaps it was just another customs checkpoint, or perhaps there was some skullduggery about to begin. Birgit pulled over and waited for me to do the same. We pulled our helmets off and looked across towards the policeman, removing our gloves as we did so. We'd long ago learnt that when confronted by officials, it paid dividends to let them see your face, and to have your hand ready to give a firm handshake. If they were accompanied by a smile and a hello in whatever the local language was, potentially tense situations were diffused quite quickly. It was a simple matter of showing respect. None of this worked this time. Papers? the policeman demanded. Birgit asked what the problem was. You were going too fast. We have laws in this country, you know. There will be a fine to pay, he said abruptly, with a tone that bordered on vicious. I knew exactly what was going on. The stories about the corrupt policemen were at the forefront of our minds. I felt a tingle of anticipation for what would happen next. There were three issues. One, we'd not been speeding. Two, they wanted money and were sure that the power of their uniforms was going to get it for them. Three, we were not going to pay a bribe. The fact that Birgit was a female motorcyclist on a big bike threw them for a moment. It also threw them that she knew more than enough Spanish to make a very clear and indignant refusal. It was enough to put them momentarily on the defensive, and that meant they said too much. They thought we'd ridden all the way from the border, and to do that by this time of day we must have been riding fast, much too fast but we had a joker to play. As always, we'd hung on to our hotel receipt, and the one from the Limones stated the date of our stay very clearly indeed. Once Birgit had pointed this out to them, they didn't have a leg to stand on, 
and very begrudgingly let us go. Brilliant. One up to Birgit and Sam. But they still made us deal with an intense, face-saving, finger-waggling lecture on the evils of speeding before they let us go. The next Peruvian oddity was a toll booth. The only thing we knew about these was that bikers blissfully don't have to pay a penny to go through. What we didn't know was how the system worked. In the UK, you just ride up to the booth and when the operator sees you on a bike, they lift the barrier and you're through. Simple, but it doesn't work that way in Peru. They have an even simpler system. To the right of the toll booths is a marked out lane that's wide enough for a bike, but not for any car. To make sure that cars don't even consider attempting to slip through, reflective red and white boards are mounted at knee height on galvanised angle iron posts. The arrangement was perfect for bikes. You just line yourself up with the passageway and filter through. The little walls that border it are usually low enough for your panniers to clear with ease. Sometimes I would feel a little bit guilty about wearing out the roads in a third world country with my big bike and without any contribution to the road fund. But at other times it was highly satisfying not to have to pay. Sooner or later, we were going to be overcharged for something, or charged for something that we shouldn't have been, and these free passage for bikes toll booths helped balance things out. At the next toll booth, Birgit misjudged her approach and hammered into one of the red and white boards. She hit it hard enough to make her bike wobble horribly, but she managed to stay on and at the last instant successfully heaved her bike in the direction of the entrance to the bypass lane. Behind her, she left me and a sign that was now bent over at 90 degrees. My first reaction was to try to work out how to say in Spanish, she's nothing to do with me, look, she's German, I'm English. While these thoughts were filtering sluggishly through my brain and the translation was forming, sort of, Birgit had ridden zippily up the road with a good attempt at complete innocence. She didn't stop until she was just about out of sight and even then kept herself distanced from the incident by only watching what was going on in her mirrors. Thankfully, none of the officials or police at the toll booth seemed to have noticed. I rode up to the sign and parked Libby so that it was blocked from their view. When I thought no one was looking, I leant over and tried to straighten the sign. To my complete amazement, it pulled back vertically with almost no effort at all. I then noticed that the upper and lower sections were only held together by a sliver of metal. It had obviously been hit several times before. Now, a breeze would probably be enough to snap the top right off. It was time to scoot, and I did so with as much innocent, who-me body language as I could muster. We rode the next few kilometres expecting to hear police sirens at any moment, but thankfully none came. We dreaded the thought that the police would have phoned ahead to stop us at the next toll booth, and we felt like a couple of fugitives. It was partly guilt at the damage done and partly fear of the unknown. In Europe, we would have gone to find the relevant person and apologise for the damage, but here, we battled with our conscience and fear of Peru's corruption got in the way. It was easy to feel paranoid here. Values change dramatically when you go from first to second to third world countries. Life is cheap is a hackneyed saying, but it's often not so far from reality. Bolivia is also very much a third world country, and a friend riding there had the extreme misfortune to hit a child with his bike. Our friend made the mistake of getting the child to a doctor's. He probably saved its life, but the next thing he knew, 
his bike had been confiscated and he'd been thrown in jail. The police and guards treated him as if he was complete scum, and it wasn't long before the fine was demanded. He knew that this was going to happen and was quite prepared to pay what was ever needed to get out of jail, but he wanted to use some of his money to help the child. As far as the police was concerned, he didn't have enough money. Strangely, the fine increased with each payment. It did so until he had almost no money left. He used the last he had and told a very tall tale about how he needed to be out of prison to get more money. As soon as he was out, he'd lost the man tailing him and headed straight for the airport where he bought a ticket on the first plane out, accepting that he'd never see his bike again. This confirmed that he'd been dealing with pure corruption. If it had been official, then he'd have been stopped at the airport. He paid with his credit cards, which the guards had given him so he could get them more money. Of course, he'd had his passport too, so that he could prove that his card was his when he went to the bank. Our friend had felt that if he hadn't left then, then he would probably still be in jail now. There are hundreds of Westerners in jails across Peru and Bolivia. They are lost souls. Many have tried to smuggle drugs. But there are also those who I call the unfortunates. The people had just simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. As we rode away from the toll booth, I wondered whether, if something dire happened to us, we'd be quick-witted enough to talk our way out of trouble. In the end, we could only be happy that, in this instance, Birgit's angel must have been on hand. Her bike was dented, but hardly damaged, and she had stayed upright. Had the sign not been dinged already, the story could have been a very different one. We might have had no chance to get away unnoticed. The police weren't the only danger. The first couple of days in Peru taught us an important, potentially life-saving lesson. As we'd rolled through the mountains towards Arequipa, we'd learnt that Peruvian drivers think they own the road, both sides of it. Corners were potential nightmares. It was quite normal to be riding gently around a blind corner to be confronted by some ancient heap of ex-US junk on wheels, being driven with flair, panache and a total disregard for any other road user. I decided that Peruvian drivers must have come from the same gene pool as Indian and Pakistani drivers. Either that, or the god they all worshipped, regardless of name, must be the same controller of fate and destiny. As in, if it's God's will that I die today, then keeping to my side of the road won't make any difference anyway. The roadside shrines continued, but in greater density. We liked Arequipa as soon as we got there. It's set in a valley full of crops, and even from a distance we could see the sun reflecting off the city's famous churches. They are made of a white volcanic rock that seemed to glow when the sun hits it. To the romantic in me it looked a little as if each one was surrounded by a halo. The traffic was busy and the layout of the streets didn't help the flow much. The streets running into the city were your typical workshop-lined industrial areas, but then, passing an invisible line, the character changed dramatically. Apart from the cars and the television aerials, it was a bit like stepping back in time. Big bikes really aren't easy to manoeuvre in busy traffic on cobblestones, so we were determined to find somewhere to stay and park up as quickly as possible. Expensive hotels and restaurants dotted the edges of the ancient main square, 
so we took to the back streets in search of somewhere cheaper with off-road parking. Most of the buildings were either one or two storeys high. I guess that once again we were in the earthquake zone. Fortunately, we found the El Gobana door quite quickly. The young and very friendly owners had safe parking and spotlessly clean rooms, hot running water, perfect. It was located in what looked like an okay part of town, and only a few minutes' walk from the town centre. Birgit and I spent the next few days ambling through the sites of the city. The convent, the churches, the cathedral, the Plaza de Armas and the markets. The plaza was bordered on three sides by impressive Spanish colonial buildings that were fronted by shady arcades. On the fourth side stood the cathedral, and in the middle, trees and flowering shrubs provided splashes of colour against the backdrop of creams and whites of the buildings. The markets were fantastic. Even the streets to get to the markets were fascinating. Mostly they were narrow and winding, bordered by small shops selling everything from wrought ironwork to enormous wedding cakes to clothing shops and old-fashioned hardware shops. The wedding cakes were both works of art and architectural masterpieces. Some were like miniature wedding cities, with bridges between the buildings. Some were layered and columned so high that I suspected the lower levels must have been made of concrete, or they wouldn't have been able to support all the upper layers. There were small girls' fantasy cakes, white and fluffy pink with amazingly ornate and intricate piped icing. When Birgit wanted to take a photograph of these edible works of art, she had a fat finger from a fat signora waved firmly in her direction. There was no mistaking the message. No photographs. The hardware shops were full of dusty displays of everything. Buckets of nails stood next to rusting reels of chain, which stood next to reels of galvanised chain for those who could afford it. Meat cleavers hung next to hammers and pickaxes. A steel shod wooden-wheeled wheelbarrow stood leaning on a wall right next to a collection of gleaming scythes and machetes. The fashion shops made us laugh. There were none of the serious-faced, skinny but elegant mannequins we were used to. Our mannequins sell us images of how retailers think we would like to look. The mannequins in these shops sold clothes with their smiles. They all had beaming grins and looked as if they were on the verge of breaking into fits of laughter. The psychology was interesting. Would you be happy if you bought this set of clothes? Absolutely. The markets themselves were rough and ready buildings, whose cream-washed rather dingy walls could probably tell real tales. They had stood watching over and protecting generations of market traders who probably had sold pretty much the same produce for all that time. Tomatoes, oranges, lemons, grapefruit, cucumber, maize cobs, Ten different types of beans, lettuce, carrots, sweet potatoes and avocados. The fruits and vegetables were stacked up in great piles of colour every pace or so. Mingled in between the fruit and vegetables were the butchers and the sellers of imported plastic things, none of which looked as if they would survive a journey back to a village. They were colourful, but in a fake sort of way. After all, they were competing with the natural colours that the other stores proudly displayed. Both of us wanted to get up into the mountains to Cusco, and if we could make it to Machu Picchu, then that would be a bonus. 
but we'd heard all sorts of stories about the roads up into the mountains. None of them were tarmacked, and all of them supposed to be very dodgy to ride. My back was playing up a little, and the thought of getting stuck out on another remote dirt road was quite unsettling. I'd slipped on a wet cobblestone outside the market, and had then, almost immediately afterward, put my foot down expecting to find that the pavement was there, only to find that it wasn't. The jolt to my back had sent a shiver right through me. It wasn't painful, but it was a warning that if I was unlucky many more times, then I'd be in trouble. I wasn't happy with myself, but knew that I should stop being so bloody ungrateful. I could still do stuff. We knew that scare stories were notches on travellers' metaphorical gun handles, and that such stories were always the ones to be told with the most glee and embellishment. Of course, storytellers weren't trying to put others off, just making sure that their own experiences were told with a suitable depth of warning. Drama helped. Normally, we'd listen, but take such stories with a certain amount of salt. We'd go and find out for ourselves. But my back cast a different light on things. We'd just have to find another way up to Cusco. And that was where the possibility of the train suddenly changed from being a traveller's story into an epic that we experience for ourselves. We were surrounded by the warm yellow neon glow of Arequipa at night. Dark shadows and amber reflections stained the intricately carved white volcanic buildings of Peru's second city. And after a brief bargaining session with the driver of the mustard-coloured Toyota taxi, we were on our way to the railway station. Our driver soon eased his taxi into the gloom of the station yard and I was surprised at how quiet it was. There were hardly any people around, just a few stalls selling bread, sweets and the inevitable soft drinks. The yellow, bubblegum-flavoured Inca-Cola was displayed proudly at the front of the stalls in two-litre clear plastic bottles. The scene was harshly picturesque, with stalls lit up by single bare electric light bulbs. In the fringes of the light, the dark-skinned stallkeepers huddled together like fairy tale goblins. One could almost see eager hands being rubbed together at the thought of the profits that this might would surely bring. We discovered that the train ran on a somewhat erratic basis, and that there were days in between each departure. This meant that the straight-faced stallholders had to make a killing this night, or they'd be in trouble. We could sense the tension. I pondered the precariousness of their livelihoods. If the train broke down, or there was a strike, a landslide, or any one of many other potential problems, these people and their families would be going hungry. For those who had invested in hot or fresh food, there was perhaps real difficulty to be faced. They were all gamblers living on the edge, and behind their blank expressions, I was sure that there were sharp minds waiting to take advantage of any opportunity that came their way. Hey guys, if you want to help support the Adventure Sports Podcast, do us a favor and visit our site at adventuresportspodcast.com and click on the sponsor links on the right-hand side of the page. Even if you're not in the market for one of their products right now, it's always good for them to know that you're hearing about them on our show. If you'd like to support us directly, you can visit our site at www.180tack. There you'll find the 180 stove and 180 flame camp stoves, as well as the Bearline Plus utility system. Consider picking one up for yourself or maybe even for your fellow adventurer. And last but not least, you can always visit patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and donate a little bit to the show. 
Thanks for being awesome listeners. We truly value you guys. And now back to the show. We hoisted our backpacks and wandered into the glaring fluorescent light of the waiting room. We'd allowed ourselves plenty of time, and having picked up our boletos de viaje, tickets to ride, the previous day, we settled down to wait. We knew that trains in South America ran on South American time, so it could be a long wait. As our eyes got used to the brightness, we saw that there were other tourists already waiting, but no locals. The hands of the large, heavy, wooden and brass clock ticked slowly by. I began to wonder if the locals knew something we didn't, but there wasn't anyone to ask, so we carried on waiting patiently. At 8.30, new sounds began to filter through into the expectant atmosphere of the waiting room. For some reason, I felt the need to look the calm, experienced traveller. I casually studied, for the fourth time, the curly-edged landscape wall poster that graphically described how high we would be travelling, hopefully this night. The ride would take us along the highest railway in the world. Some of the people waiting had gone to investigate the sounds, and when they didn't come back, the rest of us hoisted backpacks once more and followed them through the worn double doors. There in front of us stood six rickety old carriages. The dim platform lights showed that the carriages had once been painted a neat two-tone orange. Now they were battered and seemingly unloved. Burgess and I exchanged glances that needed no words. The cars nearest to us were economy class, very basic, with firm, straight-back seats, no lighting and no heating. I was suddenly very glad that we decided not to rough it. The next two in line were smartly called Pullman class. This is the tourist section. Inside were saggy and stained reclining seats of dubious vintage, and single-sex toilets that were equally ancient. These were located at opposite ends of the carriage and were surprisingly clean. The forward two cars were for cargo. I walked the platform for the last half hour, stretching muscles that I knew would be cramped and sore within a few hours. I watched the last-minute rush of locals and tourists alike get settled for the twelve-hour journey through the desert and up into the Andes. The locals staggered across the platform, loaded high with brightly wrapped bundles and plastic-clad parcels of goodness knows what. The blue and white enamel wall sign said, No live animals, in Spanish and in English, but said nothing about the proverbial kitchen sink. With a last frantic rush, the economy coaches were finally stuffed 3D jigsaw style. Bundles, both human and merchandise, were wedged in tightly in the cold and dark. The tourist section filled now with the eager and the anxious. Most were backpackers, but a good percentage were locals who were decidedly better dressed than the Indians who'd been piling into the economy class compartments. One was a toothless old lady, whose face was so wrinkled it looked like a baked potato that had been left in the oven for far too long. She was bundled up in a heavy quilted blue satin jacket, and over her head she had a peach-coloured chiffon scarf. Her companion was a small boy, who was obviously at her beck and call. I guessed that this was the first time he'd been on a train, 
as he fearfully looked around the compartment and started at unfamiliar noises. He also jumped at the brusque orders that were being rattled out by his imperious mistress. People found their seat numbers and slotted their packs securely into overhead racks that for once had plenty of space for you to stash large bags on. I thought that our train designers at home could learn a thing or two. The more cautious and the more experienced travellers locked theirs with padlocks to the metal bars. Chunky matte black local padlocks from China and Taiwan were clicked into place, alongside sleek brass padlocks from Germany and Scandinavia. Those packs that didn't fit above were placed in the gangways as traps for the unwary. The cargo section had its passengers too. Large waxy brown cardboard boxes were being stacked aboard. These were packed with bewildered, cheeping young chicks, bound for the dinner tables of the Inca's descendants and tourists alike. With a whiplash jolt, a thundering diesel engine of matching orange livery was fastened to the coaches. The heads of the unsuspecting moved with shock unison inside the tourist section, with experienced acceptance in the economy. The chicks' heads could no longer be seen. Still on the platform, I was anxious. I just hoped the last-minute welding job I'd watch being done on the engine coupling would hold. Little did I know how worried I should have been. With another jolt, the train began to heave itself away from the reassuring security of the station. I jumped on board. Engine thundering and horn blaring, the mishmash of life on wheels was persuaded arthritically through the peace of the darkened suburbs. I was sure there would nobody setting their watch by us. Inevitably, the train was late. A tall, floodlit cross on a hillside marked our departure from the confines of the city, and a cold, strangely musty-smelling air welcomed us into the desert. Up ahead, the engine blared its horn, as if in a soulful mourning at our passing from man's hustle and bustle into the secret calm of the night. The panorama of stars threw a pale light over the bleak nothingness outside. We could see no further than the carriage lights and the stars conspired to let us. Even the platform lights had been bright in comparison to the tunnel of flickering shapes and shadows that we now found ourselves passing through. But a hard, bright cone of light shone out from the front of the engine. Sand dunes and cartoon-scale cacti flared quickly with the rushing, darting probe of its ray. The night secrets exposed and naked for one fleeting moment. Inside, as the train picked up speed, we looked at each other with a mixture of resignation and horror. How, we wondered, was the carriage managing to stay on the track? One minute, we were leaning crazily to one side, teetering almost at the point of no return. The next, with the smoothness of a hiccuping pendulum, we were rushing towards the rock face or sand dune on the other side. This manic and uncomfortable motion was accompanied by a cacophony of sounds. Creaks, groans, grinding, banging and rattling filled the air, assuring us that we were still alive and still in forward motion. We had eleven and a half hours still to go. Amazingly, we both managed to sleep. I don't remember dropping off. In the absence of a gentle rocking motion, nervous exhaustion obviously did the trick. Tea made from the famous coca leaf helped us too, I'm sure. It was poured by a blue uniform steward from a battered pale blue metal sleeve thermos flask, 
whose perished cork seal was helped by a wedge of pink plastic carrier bag. We reasoned that, at this lower altitude, there was a chance that the water it had been made from had been bored for long enough to have annihilated the microscopic dangers. If not, well, at least one of us was sitting close enough to their appropriate toilet. Tea, or mate de coca, is an old Andean Indian remedy for the equally dreaded altitude sickness. Not wanting to turn our sacred valley dream into a nightmare, we drank the overly sweet mate with enthusiasm. Only twisting and turning with clockwork regularity helped ease the aches that soon pained us as our bones refused to form into the shape of the reclining seats. These seats could not have been made for the bodies of European size. I consoled myself with thoughts of those to the rear in cold, dark and rigid seats. I wondered how they were faring. Worse? Or perhaps better off from being so tightly wedged together? The dawn came with a gentle lilac mist that changed rapidly to a romantic orange glow. This clean, hard light, which can only be found at high altitude, followed as the sun raised itself above the craggy mountains. We rattled on through the waking world, our passage at first seeming to abuse the beauty that surrounded us. But then again, the orange colours of the train were matching the sunrise, and our movement was in keeping with the stirring of life in the new day. In mud and sod huts, bleakly placed in a sort of no-man's land, I imagined arms being stretched, eyes being rubbed and kettles being put to boil on fires of dried llama dung. At 6.30am we climbed stiffly from the warmth of our carriage onto the bitter, freezing cold air of the platform. We had reached the halfway point, the mud-walled Huliaca railway station. We searched quickly for a spot in the gentle warmth of the sun's rays. My eyes wandered around our strange new surroundings, my chest tight and short of breath in the thin air. I couldn't quite believe that I actually wanted to be back, sprawled in the discomfort of seat number 14. We had three hours to wait for our connection, which surely couldn't be as rough a ride as that of the night had been. We sat on our backpacks, tiredness making us feel a little vulnerable but also philosophical. Battered bananas and day-old rolls, fellow survivors of the night, went down well as breakfast. Russian doll-shaped Indian ladies scuttled past us. Their peculiar scuttling movement was a way of walking that seemed to be a cultural characteristic. Their babies were casually slung across their backs in brightly woven shawls that seemed to just about hold them safely. Outsized bowler hats or fedoras with rounded crowns topped twin jet-back plaits that hung to their waists. The ends of these were woven together in a sort of simple crochet. Respectful greetings passed between these mothers of the mountains and the crisply uniformed railway officials. We were ignored. For them, it was just another day, and as foreigners merely passing through, we were of little interest. The surprising habit of most Indian women to wear a bowler hat strikes you as soon as you arrive in this part of the world. Some wear hats that look like fedoras, with their softer felt domes rounded out, but most sport hard-topped hats that look just like the bowlers that were so popular in Europe and the USA between the two world wars. You see both types of hat in black, brown and even white. The one thing they all have in common 
is that they look much too small for their owners. They perch precariously on the top of women's head, looking as if they're defying gravity. There are plenty of legends as to why exactly this particular type of hat is so popular here. Some say that a clever salesman solved the problem when his firm had imported bowler hats of the wrong size for the Irish railway workers to wear. Apparently, the hats were something that they liked, perhaps from a safety point of view. The hats are hard-topped and would give an element of protection if some sort of building material were to fall or if struck over the head with intent. These were tough, hard times and the railway builders of this part of the world in the 1920s would have been a rough bunch. The tale has it that when the supply of hats arrived and were too small for the navvies, the salesmen persuaded the local women that they were the height of female fashion in Europe and a custom was created. Some say the salesmen added to the bowler's appeal by telling the Indian women that they guaranteed fertility. There were other theories. One is that the Spanish conquistadors started the fashion as a result of being seen wearing their round-topped, firm-brimmed hats of the time. Whatever the truth, these hats are now part of the culture and both southern Peru and Bolivia would look completely lost without them. Now they are a sign of position in society. They cost at least a month's salary for the average Quecha or Aymara family. But apparently, the position and the angle at which they worn is significant. It can indicate whether a woman is from a powerful or wealthy family, or whether she is married or single. When the wearing of bowler or derby hats ended in Europe in the period between the 1950s and the 1980s, the main manufacturer in Italy, Borsaline, closed its factories there and decamped to Bolivia. Apparently, the best South American bowlers are stamped with the Borsaline logo. Their continued popularity may be down to the simple fact that they keep the sun off the top of the head, and the felt that they are made of in Bolivia is easy to keep clean. The women look so at home in their headgear and wear it with such a panache that it's easy to forget that these hats used to be de rigueur for English butlers, city bankers, lawyers and civil servants. But as you see their heads bobbing along above the scuttling walk of their owners, it's easier to recall Charlie Chaplin or Laurel and Hardy. In Europe and the USA, the hats have all but died out, but up in the Andes, they've taken on a new lease of life and remain of great cultural importance. When our train arrived, it was just as battered and noisy as its relation. We climbed aboard feeling confidence that we knew what we would find inside. Instead, we found seats that didn't recline, and their cushions were damp with a wetness of unknown but worrying origin. The ever-useful carrier bag came into play, and we settled down to a crinkly journey. Our closest travelling companion, in a carriage filled mostly with local people, was a very drunk Dutch guy who was knocking back vodka and coke for breakfast. He was drunkenly and very loudly trying to chat up two Brazilian girls who sat rooted to their seats with the stunned expression of rabbits caught in headlights. With a by now familiar roar and hard jolt, the train pulled out of the dusty platform, horn blaring. Fully awake at this hour, the townsfolk paused their dealings as the train rumbled right through the middle of the marketplace. The track was the marketplace. Dark brown fedoras and black bowlers bobbed, and eyes squinted at our disturbance to the business of selling wares that looked both familiar and simply bizarre. Plastic toys and combs from Taiwan, with their cheap and cheerful colours, 
were next to buckets of chicken legs and rolls of alpaca wool. Aluminium kettles gleamed in the sun, neighbours to bales of wire and tubs of sheep stomachs. A baby sat squalling on the ground, next to a bucket of what looked suspiciously like eyeballs. As the train passed out of the market, the people swept back to cover the tracks with their wares, and within seconds it was as if we'd never been there. The train rolled like a drunken sailor from the outskirts of the town onto the great plain covered in shaggy tussocks of grass and bounded on two sides by low ranges of craggy mountains. These were almost purple against the vivid blue of the sky. To me, the straw-coloured plain contained a surprising number of rugged, mud-walled farms. Some had corrugated iron weighted down with large rocks, but most of the farms had sod or straw roofs. All had wisps of smoke coming out of holes in the centres of their roofs. I wondered at the farmer's survival in this starkly beautiful but seemingly waterless world. The clumps of grass were steaming little clouds as dew evaporated in the now warm sun. But there wasn't even a hint of a stream or a river, and I could see no wells. Dogs with thought-provoking features always shot out from the trackside farms. A gleeful race would be on, dog versus train, hind legs scrabbling for grip on the loose trackside gravel, the giant steel wheels of the train emitting loud screeches as they spun on shiny steel ribbons that seemed to be the only things that even resembled straight lines in this world. Tongues flopped, ears sleeked back and coats often clumped with dried mud. The dogs would always chase faster and move more nimbly over the tussocks and ditches than we thought possible. Then we would remember that this rattling old set of creaks and groans on wheels was going to take 12 or more hours to cover the final 350 kilometres. But we couldn't fail to be impressed with the enthusiasm and the endurance of our fleet of little four-legged escorts as they stayed with us for several kilometres at a time. A new tarmac road was being built through the mountains. For much of the time, it followed along the railway tracks. We pondered the continuing existence of this little orange train. My body cheered at the thought of a smooth, relaxing bus ride through this fabulous beauty. But my mind romantically viewed the passing of such an old friend to the mountain people with a touch of sadness. The length and discomfort of the journey had made me feel a little more in touch with this harsh life of the mountains, and with these tough little people living in their world of constant challenge. We climbed slowly through valleys that were neatly terraced in the style of ages past, many having been built by the ancients themselves. We climbed past buildings that had hardly changed in design for hundreds of years. Browns, yellows, sage and bright clear blue constantly surrounded us. This collection of colours was only broken by the white of a snowy top mountain top or the human colours of an occasional village. There, posters advertised beer or washing powder, and the vivid distinctive colours of Andean knitwear flapped on washing lines. Above us, condors soared, floating effortlessly on their giant wings. From a distance, condors are quite magnificent with their three-metre windspans, but close up, these 15-kilo bruises are one of the oddest-looking birds I'd ever seen. Their wrinkled, bald heads make them look like devious, wizened old men. On the ground, they look comically clumsy and totally out of their element, but in the air... 
The river rushed cold and glacier blue beside us as we moved through the Urumbamba Valley. Its waters opaque with swirling ice-ground sediments. It was the bringer of life to so many along its banks. At brief stops in dusty villages, vendors of hot spicy pies, chocolates, alpaca sweaters and singly sold cigarettes would tout their wares to the red-eyed passengers. Like us, our temporary companions were glad to take the opportunity to stretch and stroll, however briefly, on a surface that did not rock and roll. We were missing our bikes. The glimpses we had had of the road showed us that this section at least held no fears and no dangers that we couldn't handle. In the day's last yellowing light, we arrived exhausted and sated with beauty. The fabled Inca town of Cusco lay before us. We worked to unscramble our brains, to encourage them to take in our new surroundings. Our senses told us that this was a city with an air of proud difference. Cusco was the historical capital of the sun-worshipping Inca Empire. Cusco is a city surrounded by beauty, and it has a history of war and peace, of love and cruelty. We were welcomed to the cobble streets with the blare of car horns and a taxi driver wanting to overcharge us, but we didn't care. We'd made it. We'd survived a magnificent 27-hour body-breaking journey through time and had landed in living history. Cusco, city of the Incas, Spanish conquistadors, and now invading travellers eager to marvel at the skills and stories of days gone by. The sacred valley awaited us. A dream and the unknown. That'll do it for Sam's reading of Chapter 12 from Distant Suns. We'll have one more reading from Sam next week, and that'll be from Tortillas to Totems. Until then, get out and have some fun. 